Well, point one in your out, uh, outline, last week you may remember that uh, King Saul was rejected by the Lord and by his prophet Samuel, and the Lord's prophet mourned for him. Uh, Samuel mourned Saul's failure as king. Although we also noted that in rejecting Saul last week, uh, the Lord promised him that in tearing the kingdom away from him, he had in fact given his kingdom to another, to a neighbor of Saul's, the Lord said, uh, one that was better than Saul. And our passage uh, today really is the unveiling of the one to replace Saul. Who is he? How is he better? We were left with those two questions from our passage last week, and there are questions we're pursuing today. Who is this one, and how is he better? So verse, verse 1 of chapter 16, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Immediately in chapter 16, the, um, the focus shifts from Saul onto his replacement. Remember those questions? Who is he? How is he better? Well, who is he? That answer is already partly answered, isn't it? In verse 1 there. We already know he is one of the sons of Jesse of Bethlehem. How is he going to be better than Saul? Well, that answer too, at least, is partially answered. For this king, we're told straight up, this king, unlike Saul will be chosen by the Lord. This king, the Lord will provide for himself. He will provide entirely for himself. Is that different to Saul? Yes. If you remember, the choice of Saul was driven not by the Lord, but by the people. And so if you went back through this week and you read chapters 8 through to 15, 8 through to 15, you'd notice that Saul is referred to more often than not as the king the people had chosen, as their king, as the people's king. And of course, the Lord was certainly involved. We noticed that as we worked our way through the passages. We noted the Lord's sovereignty and his grace in listening to the people's request for a king. But even so, Saul was the king the people had chosen for themselves. But now you see in chapter 16... Just as he'd spelled out to Samuel, now the Lord intended to provide a king entirely for himself. And because of that, he would be a better king because he was entirely the Lord's choice. But just like the question of who is he, we need to keep reading to see uh, these things about why is he better spelled out for us more. So point two on your outline. Samuel, after hearing all that in verse 1, uh, he seems less concerned with this new king and all that stuff we've just been talking about. He's more concerned with his own skin, isn't he? Verse 2 of chapter 16. Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. We need to remember, folks, that to anoint someone was to mark them out as the Lord's king. And Samuel, I'm pretty sure, was thinking, well, Saul is going to be less than impressed to know that he's going to anoint someone other than him. He's worried. But that is the Lord's command. And so Samuel packs up his little horn of oil and he heads 
to Bethlehem. And when he gets to Bethlehem, we read there's clearly an air of nervousness. I would assume Samuel is a fairly daunting figure of his own. But Samuel has rejected Saul. And I assume that whole incident we read about last week had become well known. And so the elders of Bethlehem, they gather and they're worried about this powerful enemy of King Saul who has come to just their tiny town. They want to know, don't they, in verse 4, have you come in peace? He reassures them and he invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. As we'll soon discover, the key word to notice in these verses is the word saw, to see. Because you see, from Samuel's point of view, the way Samuel sees things, Eliab was clearly the one to be king. Tall, strong, good king material, according to the way Samuel saw things. Although you might notice there's already a disturbing similarity to Saul in all of that. But, and here's the most important thing. Here's the most important thing. Regardless of how Samuel saw things, the Lord had a different point of view. The Lord saw things differently when it came to the king that he was choosing for himself. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. You see, the Lord sees differently to the way man sees. The Lord has a different point of view. Samuel favoured Eliab because of his appearance, because of his height. But they're not the key indicators. What Samuel needed to know was that the Lord had rejected Eliab. In other words, what Samuel needed to know was the Lord had not chosen Eliab. And of course, once the Lord has a point of view on something, that's the end of it, isn't it? The way the Lord sees things determines how everyone should see things. There's no, well, what's true for you may not necessarily be true for me. There's none of that when it comes to the Lord, is it? Samuel needed to see things entirely from the Lord's point of view. And so the Lord went on to say in verse 7, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, folks, I'm going to do something that is suspicious, okay? And you'll be right to be suspicious, but I want you to trust me enough to come with me just a little way along the track, okay? Trust me, I'm a pastor. I actually want to pass on to you an alternative English translation of that last sentence, which I know is immediately suspicious because this verse is so well loved. But this alternative translation that I want to suggest to you um, is suggested by John Woodhouse, who we heard last year at Western Plains Christian Convention. He's uh, the principal of Moore College. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's done heaps of work on 1 Samuel. And having thought about it a lot and prayed about it a lot, I'm convinced that it's actually better and that it makes better sense. And the alternative translation is the one I've put on your outline there. It, it reads like this. The Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. In other words, the Lord's point of view 
is determined by his heart. The Lord's point of view is determined by the Lord's heart, which is another way of describing his sovereign plan, his sovereign purpose, his sovereign will. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees according to the eyes. The Lord sees according to his heart. Why wasn't Eliab chosen to be king? Because the Lord had not chosen him. Samuel was being guided by what Samuel could see. But he needed to see things the way the Lord sees things. According to the Lord's heart. According to the Lord's sovereign will and purpose. And I wonder, can you appreciate the difference that makes? You see, reading verse 7 as it's written, perhaps in our Bible, would lead us to think that the Lord's choice is somehow determined by something in the new king's heart. And certainly the Lord can see our heart. That's absolutely true. He can see anyone's heart. But of course, what he would see would be wickedness and deceit and sin. The fact that the Lord can see into our heart, that's not a comfort. That's a terror, surely. And I think that's the problem of reading verse 7 in that way. If the Lord were to choose on the basis of someone's heart, a human heart, who could he choose? But in fact, the Lord chooses according to his own heart. Which, you know what, is that's what Samuel already knew. In fact, Samuel had already told Saul that very thing. I want you to come with me back to chapter 13. It's not a passage we looked at directly uh, on Sunday mornings. Come with me to chapter 13 and verse 13. And you can see it there. We're jumping into a conversation between Samuel and Saul after another uh, incident of Saul's disobedience. In verse 13, Samuel says this, You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Here it is, ready? But now your kingdom will not endure... The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. A man after his own heart. Whose heart? The Lord's heart. The Lord has sought after a man after the Lord's own heart. In other words, the Lord's choice of Saul's replacement will be entirely determined by the Lord's heart, by his sovereign will. And back in chapter 16, after that reminder there in verse 7 that we've been looking at, it would seem that Samuel gets it, you see. Because if you come back to chapter 16, and we keep reading, you can see that Samuel now gets that this chosen king will be entirely the Lord's choice. He gets that he needs to see things from the Lord's point of view. That's clear. Verse 8 of chapter 16, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. None of Jesse's sons are chosen by the Lord. According to his sovereign will, his heart, none of these were to be his king. But of course, there's another And from a human point of view, a most unlikely king. Just a boy, we read, tending the sheep out in the yards, out in the the paddocks. 
But Samuel sends for him and waits for his arrival. Verse 12. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Why was he the one? Because the Lord had chosen him. He was ruddy, we read, which means red. He may well have had red hair. And as fitting as that obviously is for a king, that's not why he was chosen. If anything, the description there points out how unlikely this one would be as a king. Jesse's youngest son, whom we discover is named David, was chosen not because of him, but because of the Lord. He was chosen after the Lord's heart. He was chosen according to the Lord's heart. And really interestingly, and for me this clinches that alternative reading of verse 7, but really interestingly, much later in his life, David, who is then King David, reflected on being made king. And do you know what he said? It's there on your outline from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Praying to God, he says, Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. See, why was David chosen as king? Because of the Lord's heart. And that's the sense in which he was better than Saul. Better because David was the king chosen by the Lord for himself. If we pause, we can think, well, gee, the notion of the Lord choosing for himself is not a one-off, is, is it, of course? Not a one-off to chapter 16. From start to finish, the Lord is the sovereign God who exercises his sovereignty. And all of this fits really well with the Lord's sovereign choice of his people, generally, doesn't it? The nation of Israel in the Old Covenant were chosen, not because of anything in them, but because the Lord graciously set his affection on them. They weren't more numerous. They weren't more worthy. If anything, they were the fewest of all people. They were the least worthy of all people, and, the Lord, and yet the Lord graciously chose them to be his people. The same is true of his new covenant people, us who are Christian. We are not chosen by the Lord because of anything in us. We are chosen by the Lord because in his sovereignty and in his mercy, he chooses us. If anything, the Lord goes out of his way to choose unexpected people, unworthy people. And so to the Corinthian Christians, the Apostle Paul wrote this. You can look it up later. The reference is there on your outline in 1 Corinthians 1. He said this to them, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The Lord calls unexpected people into his kingdom. He exercises his sovereign mercy. It's not we that choose him, but it's he that chooses us. It's not we that loved God that so much as he loved us. That's his character. The Lord is the incomparably holy God. And we see that characteristic of God on display here in our passage as he sovereignly chooses a king for himself. 
Samuel no longer saw things from man's point of view. He saw as God saw, and so he anointed David. Point three and verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel then went to Ramah. There's a new king, a new Messiah, a new Christ on the scene. Anointed with oil by Samuel, anointed with the spirit of the Lord. And of course, it's with the coming of the spirit of the Lord upon David that we expect great things of this new king. And of course, great things come, don't they? Great psalms, great victories, great leadership. But it's important to note that it wasn't the greatness of David that led to him being chosen by the Lord. It was the fact that he was chosen by the Lord and anointed by the Spirit that led to David's greatness, not the other way around. But of course, if we pause and step back a little from the passage, we might realize that, hang on, something strange has just happened. Because now you see, there are two kings in Israel. Saul and David. Saul, the king chosen by the people for themselves, and David, chosen by the Lord for himself. And you see, now it's your point of view which will determine which one you recognize as the true king. From a human perspective, Saul is still the king, he's still got the crown, he still rules the tribes. And although David, of course, is now the true king, his kingship is hidden. He's just a boy shepherd in Bethlehem. His kingship can't be seen unless it's seen from the perspective of the Lord. And so a very interesting tension develops in 1 Samuel now, a tension between these two kings. And the question that emerges from the, from the verses and the chapters that follow is this, do you see as God sees? Who will recognize God's anointed king? And of course, as significant as that question is within the pages of 1 Samuel and within the life of David, the question becomes even more pressing as the story of the Bible unfolds further, doesn't it? And the ultimate anointed one of the Lord steps forward. When it comes to him, do you see as God sees? Because many hundreds of years later, in the very same town of Bethlehem, there were still shepherds out in the fields, still keeping watch over their flocks. The same fields that the shepherd David would have known. But these shepherds, hundreds of years later, were to receive a message concerning David's greatest descendant, the ultimate anointed one of the Lord. Remember? Let me read it to you. It's famous. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ. 
He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And let me tell you, if David seemed a strange Christ, how much more so Jesus? A baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a feeding trough. So weak and unthreatening and helpless from a human point of view. Seeing as man sees. Yet the shepherds, you see, they were given God's perspective on this baby. He's the saviour. He's the Christ, the Lord. And just as David was anointed with the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit descended onto Jesus as he was baptised. And once again, the perspective of God was declared. The voice from heaven on that day rang out saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so Jesus... The Christ, anointed with the Spirit, went about doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. But of course, our view of Jesus is most tested, isn't it? At the climactic moment of his ministry, at his death, humbled, even to death, even death on a cross. And seeing as man sees, seeing according to our eyes... He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, seen through man's eyes. And yet once more, God's true point of view is presented, but in the strangest of ways, you know, because written above the crucified Jesus were the words, the mocking words, This is the king of the Jews. And you know what? Around the crucified Jesus were being spoken words, sneering words. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And beyond death, of course, God raised him to life. Exalted by God to the highest place. He's been been declared with power by God to be the Son of God, the Christ. By his resurrection from the dead, he's been declared Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has been appointed the judge of the world. And on the final day, he will save his people and allow them to share in his resurrection victory over sin and death. That's how God sees Jesus the Christ. And it is most certainly not the way the world sees him, is it? And our world at the moment wants the freedom to be able to hold, hold differing opinions on everything, including Jesus. But it's only when we see Jesus as God sees Jesus that we see him truly. And we'll only see Jesus like that if we allow our minds to be shaped by the word of God and by his spirit. And folks, we need to be ready to do battle with the, words, with the world's alternative views on Jesus. We must be ready to defend the truth about Jesus. We must be ready to proclaim God's view of Jesus, the truth about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. 
You know what? Way back those shepherds in those, in those fields around Bethlehem, after hearing the message of the gospel, do you remember their response? They immediately came to Jesus, God's king. And when they had seen him with eyes shaped by, what, by the way God saw him, they, they next spread the word concerning what they had been told. And all who heard it were amazed. And friends, let me, t- let me say, surely our response must mirror the shepherds. We should come to Jesus and see him as God sees him, the Christ in whom rests all power and majesty and grace. And we should next, of course, spread the word concerning him, inviting others, challenging others to see Jesus as, as God sees him. For the pressing question of the moment, the pressing question of the day, the pressing question of every day until Jesus comes back is this question. There is no more important one. Do you see Jesus the same way as God sees Jesus? It's not, how do you see Jesus? The question is, do you see Jesus in the same way that God sees Jesus? Because you know what? God has exalted him to the highest place. God has given him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every single tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. Do you see as God sees? How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are incomparably holy, that you rule, and that your rule is good. And right. And Father, we thank you for sovereignly choosing David to be your anointed one back in 1 Samuel. And we thank you, Father, of course, that in choosing David, you are unfolding your sovereign plan from all eternity to unveil the ultimate Christ, David's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus himself. And Father, there are many ways in which his kingship is hidden. Father, our world mocks him. He looks so weak. The message of Jesus seems so weak. And so, Father, we thank you for giving us your perspective, your point of view, the truth that he is the Christ, that his name is the name above every other name. And Father, we thank you for helping us to already bend the knee to him. But Father, it may well be that there is someone in this room, even this morning, who is yet to see Jesus as you see him. And I pray, Father, that you would help them to see truly and respond rightly. And Father, we are going out into a world, even even after we leave this building, a world that holds Jesus in contempt or disregards him, 
or thinks that somehow you know, there, are, there are different points of view possible. Father, we want to be strong and courageous. Father, we want to defend the truth about Jesus. We want to challenge the people we love and the people we just bump into with the truth about Jesus. We want to be like those shepherds, Father. We want to declare the truth of what we have been told concerning Jesus Christ. And so make us like those shepherds, Father. Forgive us our cowardice and our lovelessness. Send us out into your world, Father, with the message of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.